0: calling Jesus remains the sacrifice are you willing to respond are you ready to Okay, let's turn to 1 Samuel. We're going to deal mainly in chapter 2 tonight, but I want to just go back to chapter 1 and look at a few verses. Verse 24. Now when she, Hannah, which if you remember Hannah's is uh, Samuel's mother, When she had weaned him, meaning Samuel, she took him up with her with three bulls, one ephah of flour, and a skin of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord in Shiloh. And the child was young. Hannah had faith in God, she believed God, and also she lived up to the vow that she made. The vow was if the Lord would give her a male child, and you have to remember, as we said last week, that. One of the worst things for any woman to encounter back then was to be barren and not have any children. And if a woman was barren, they they would really look down at at her. And, you know, as we see with Abraham and his wife Sarah and the servant uh, Hagar, she, you know, made fun of Sarah. And the same thing here, Peninnah made fun of Hannah. So Hannah makes a vow that she'll give this child, if she bears a child, she'll give this child to the Lord. And so I was wondering how far away Shiloh was uh, from where they lived. And I I found out that it was approximately 20 miles. And there's another scripture, probably bump into it later, where it talks about that Elkanah, which was Hannah's husband, those two would go together together. For the yearly sacrifice. You know they had a a yearly sacrifice in Israel. That they would go up. And present the offering to the high priest. So it, it implies to me. That when she gave Samuel to the Lord. She was probably only seeing him once a year. And she makes a little coat for him. And takes it once a year. How hard would it be. To have a child. And to see if that was the case. She only saw him once a year. How hard would it be. To see your child only once a year. That's very difficult, especially when the child is very, very young. That child was weaned. I don't know what the age was when they weaned a child back then, yes. Pardon me? Three. Three. I thought it was was, uh, younger than that, but (coughs) even at three years old, The child is really small. They're very young. You want to, your normal instinct is to take them to yourself and to take, you know, you want to take care of them, provide for them, protect them and what have you. But she has faith in God and she's going to follow through on a vow that she made. Now, there are people who make vows and say, if the Lord gets me out of this, you know, I'll do this, I'll do that, I'll do this. And rarely do people follow through on that. Some people do, uh, but most don't. But here, in this case here, with with Hannah, she does. In verse 28, Therefore I also have lent him, this is Hannah speaking, to the Lord. As long as he lives, he shall be lent, and that means given, to the Lord. So they worship the Lord there, meaning her and her son and Elkanah. Now in verse 1, And Hannah prayed and said, So the Lord gives her Samuel. She gives him back to the Lord. Takes them to the temple, leaves them there with Eli the high priest. And then because the Lord had touched her, because the Lord had given to her this child, and what that meant to her personally, the first maybe eleven verses here in chapter two, she is praising God and she's thanking God, and she's speaking uh, to the Lord about his goodness and his graciousness and you know his. Uh, high and lofty status, and so forth. But we'll just read verse 2. My heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. I smile at my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. And and I believe she means here, when she says her enemies, not just her enemies' enemies, but she specifically is meaning Peninnah, who was the one who was making fun of her because she was barren. So now she's able to smile back at her and say, See, I am not barren, even though she may not have said that. But the Lord had touched her, and she had the son, and now she's experiencing another area of salvation, the salvation of God. Verse 2, No one is holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you, nor is there any rock like our God. And she goes on and on and says these different things. Now let's go down to verse 11. Then Elkanah, that was her husband, went to his house at Ramah, but the child ministered to the Lord before Eli the priest. Now, I want to draw a a contrast here. Verse 11 talks about Samuel ministered to the Lord before Eli the priest. Verse 18, but Samuel ministered before the Lord. Now, look at verse 12. Now, the sons of Eli were corrupt. Now, Eli was the priest, and his sons, of course, uh, being Levites, were to be next in line in the priesthood. Now, the priesthood, we know, started with Moses, Aaron. Aaron was the first priest. And then you had the sons of Aaron, Eleazar and the others. And then you come down another generation, and another generation, and you have Eli, and now you have his sons. His sons' names were Hophni and Phinehas. So in verse 12, now the sons of Eli were corrupt. They did not know the Lord. First of all, why did they not know the Lord? See, because Eli was the high priest did not necessarily mean that his children would follow in the footsteps of that he's laying out before them, or because he's the priest, the high priest, does not necessarily mean that his children are going to follow the Lord. So a parent can walk with God, a parent can can give an example. Now, Eli didn't give the correct example, but nonetheless, they still could have gone to God themselves. They were in a position to know the Lord in a way that maybe others would not know him because they were Levites. They were going to be able to come in and exercise the office of a priesthood to do the sacrifices and to do all these different things that the Lord had given to the Levites alone, but they did not know him. And it says here that his, the sons of Eli were corrupt. So instead of following the Lord, they follow their own way in life. They follow their own desires and what they wanted to do. Verse seventeen. Therefore, the sin of the young men, meaning uh, Hophni and Phineas, was very great before the Lord, for men abhorred the offering of the Lord. And then the contrast to that is seen in verse twelve, where you um, excuse me, in verse. Um, Verse 11, where the child Samuel ministered to the Lord. And verse 18, now here you see the contrast here. The contrast is seen in the word but. Verse 17, Hophni and Phinehas were not serving the Lord. They were corrupt. They were abhorring the offerings and all that. Verse 18, but Samuel ministered before the Lord even as a child... Wearing a linen ephah. So the Lord will bring contrast. And even though others are walking in their own way and walking in their own will and doing their own thing and they're serving the devil, if they're serving those in the world that are corrupt, God always has those who, but they went another way. And so Samuel is standing there even as a child in direct contrast and direct opposition to the ways of the world the sin of the world and the corruption that the priest those who they were actually over him Eli was over Samuel but these other two were in a position if they were fulfilling the will of God if they were walking with God which which they weren't if they would have been they would have been over Samuel also but here is this little boy, and his heart is pure before God, and he's serving the Lord as a young child. So it doesn't matter the age, doesn't matter the intelligence, it doesn't matter how much a person does or does not know of the Bible. That does not mean that a person cannot serve the Lord from their heart. And so you see this with, with Samuel. And then if you move on down to verse 21, And the Lord visited Hannah so that she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. Meanwhile, the child Samuel grew before the Lord. The best place to grow is before the Lord. And of course, this is meaning physically, of course he was growing, but more so it's meaning spiritually He is where he is to be. He's fulfilling what the Lord is putting in his hand before him, and that's just to minister before the Lord in the tabernacle. And so in that place, Samuel grows before the Lord. If there is going to be growth in your life and in my life, It's going to be before the Lord. And I don't mean that you have to always be in church because if you take the number of hours you're in church and you compare it to all the number of hours you're not in church, the number of hours you're in church is very minuscule, even though it may be five hours on Sunday morning. But still, if you compare that to all the other hours that you have in the week, that's not very many. And so you can't, uh, your growth will not be mainly here in church alone, if you understand what I'm saying. It must be that you and I are before the Lord. Our hearts are to be before the Lord always, no matter where we are, what we're doing. If we keep ourselves away from corruption and from sin and from wickedness, and we walk with God and we do our everyday thing, our heart can go out to him and we can be before the Lord all the time. Whenever we were on vacation, we went to church, and before the church service, I wanted to quiet my spirit. And so I I sat there, and I closed my eyes, and I was just being before the Lord. And when the church service started, somebody said to me, it's not time to sleep now, it's time to wake up, because the church service is starting. Now, that's, see, people, you know, we take certain things for granted, and th- this is a born-again church. And they did not perceive or understand that I was quieting my spirit and I was just closing my eyes and just looking to the Lord, being before the Lord. And, and they said that. Well, that's, that's okay. The Lord, Lord can teach them. But the point being is that we can be before, before the Lord in church. We can be before the Lord in school, at home, even at our job. Oh! <laughs> Wow, now that's a tall tale sometimes, you know, especially when people are breathing down your neck for no reason. You can still be before the Lord and deal with things and hopefully deal with them in the correct heart attitude. Now in chapter 2, verse 13, he begins here to say and talk about the priest's custom. So the priest's custom with the people was that when any man... Offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come with a three pronged flesh hook in his hand while the meat was boiling. Then he would thrust it into the, the pan or the kettle or the cauldron or the pot, and the priest would take for himself all that the flesh hook brought up. So this kind of seems kind of obscure, so let me just explain it to you. The Lord gave the Levites a portion. He's going to provide for them because they're not out making a living, so to speak. They're taking care of the tabernacle, and there were the high priests, there were were other priests, and then there were priests that took care of all the different things in the outer court and so forth. So the Lord provides for them in a special way, so that when someone comes and they bring an offering, and they would take a portion of that for the priest, they would put it in a pot and boil it. And they would take a three-pronged hook, almost like you ever see a treble fishing hook. It has the three hooks each way. They take one of those, it's probably a little bit bigger, of course, and they, they put it down in the pot, and they pull that up, and whatever meat would, would sit in there, that was the portion for the priest. That's what God showed them to do, how to do it in Leviticus. Also, they were to take the meat, and they were to burn the fat, and so forth. So I'm not going to read all this, but what they did was they didn't do this offering in the way that God set it up in Leviticus. He set it up specifically certain ways, and they were to do it certain ways. If you do things the way the Lord sets it up and shows you, then you're walking in obedience. If you don't do that, then you're walking in presumption and you're walking in disobedience. So if you walk in disobedience, what's going to be the outcome of that? It's not going to be a good outcome. And if a person continues to walk in disobedience, the more they walk that way, the more difficult life is going to become for them, and their relationship with the Lord is going to suffer, suffer, suffer. It's not going to be what it should be. And so this whole thing, the Lord gave the priest a certain portion of the offering. And this is specifically talking about the peace offering, and you can write this down if you want, Leviticus 7, 31 through 35. That was the directions that they were supposed to do, and also Leviticus 7, 23 through 25 and 31. It talks about the directions for burning the fat. So what they did was a gross act of disobedience and lawlessness on the part of Hophni and Phinehas because they did not do what the law of God had said they were supposed to do as the priesthood. And of course, the other part of that was where Eli tries to say something to them, and we'll probably read that. I don't know if I have that in here or not. But anyway, where they were laying with the women who came to the temple, these priests, And God's watching all this. In Judges, nonconformity, nonconformity to the law was the norm for all the people. And remember, this is right after. This is the transition from the judges to the kings. They didn't always have kings. God wanted the nation to have judges. He would raise up a man of God or a woman of God. There were women judges, by the way. Deborah. He would raise up judges, and he, he would use them to bring his judgment to the people and so forth. So God never wanted a king, but the, the people wanted to be like all the other nations around, and so they kept on pressing and pressing and pressing, and we'll look at that another time. They pressed Samuel and pressed Samuel, we want to be like the other nations. Now that's quite something to say. That's like, as a Christian, we're not content where we are. We see other people out there that don't know the Lord, and we want to be like them. I want to be like them. I want to have what they have. I want to do what they do. I want to go where they go. I want to have no restrictions on my life like them. And it's basically the same thought. They wanted to be like the other nations. And so they press God on that issue. Here and now, how can the people conform if the priests are not? They're supposed to set an example and they're setting a completely different example and God will come and he does and he judges that. (coughs) Now, let's read one verse here, verse 22. We're in chapter 2. Now, Eli was very old and he heard everything his son did to all Israel and how they lay with the women who assembled at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Now, hold your place there and go to Deuteronomy chapter 21. Let's just read one more verse here. Verse 23. So Eli says to his two sons, Why do you such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all the people. He goes on, he says, No, my sons, for it is not a good report I hear. You make the Lord's people to transgress or to sin. So, Eli is in a position of authority. He is the priest above all of them. Now, in Deuteronomy 21, verse 18, If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son, who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and who, when they have chastened him, will not heed them, then his father and his mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of the city, and to the gate of the city, and they shall say to the all elders of his city, This son of ours is stubborn and rebellious, he will not obey our voice, he is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of his city shall stone him to death with stones, so you shall put away the evil from among you, and all Israel shall hear and fear. So, what Eli's sons were doing, he was the one who had the responsibility, as difficult as this is to do. But you have to remember, what they were doing was extremely wicked, wicked, wicked. And they were in a position of example. And the Lord is saying, you know, Eli should have taken action against them, removed them from the priesthood, or went here. Remember, they knew what the law said, taken him out to the elders and let them deal with it. And if they're gonna be stubborn, if they repent, well, that's different. If they're going to be stubborn and, and walk in their ways, then the punishment, according to this, was stoning. And by the way, I'll, I'll say this, that I looked this up and one source said that this law, and I don't know if this is true or not, but this law was never enacted. It was never used in the whole history of Israel. I guess it had an effect to some degree. Nevertheless, it was Eli's duty as a parent, it was Eli's duty as a father and as a high priest to do something, not to let this continue. Now, when you read the verse, it seems as though he's, he's chastising him by what he says, but he really, he really isn't. Look at verse 29. Why do you kick at my sacrifice and my offerings which I have commanded in my dwelling place and honor your sons more than me? So why would the Lord say that? He says that Eli is honoring his sons more than the Lord because he's not disciplining them. He's letting them walk in their evil, wicked way and he's doing nothing about it. He says something about it, but he doesn't take any action. So words are okay as long as there's a response, but sometimes stronger measures need to be taken than words. And that goes for us too as Christians. Sometimes the Lord will will say something to us, and of course he wants a response, but if he doesn't get it, then sometimes he'll bring circumstances to bear in the situation, and then that's something different. So he'll take a stronger measure. Verse 29. Why do you kick at my sacrifices and my offerings which I have commanded in my dwelling place and honor your sons more than me to make yourselves fat? What's that mean? To make yourself fat with the best of all the offerings of Israel, of my people. So instead of going by what he was supposed to with that flesh hook, they were going and taking the raw meat and they were going to take it and they're going to prepare it and they're going to eat it instead of, Allowing the fat to be burned. See, they did things differently. They were not going to go according to the Levitical law, according to what God had said. And that's why he says this here. You're becoming fat with the offerings. And I'm sure that Eli was eating of it too. So let's just back up a moment here to verse 25. If one, this is still Eli talking to his sons. If one man sins against another, God will judge him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who will intercede for him? Nevertheless, they did not heed the voice of their father because the Lord desired to kill them. Now, I looked up this word here because. Does anyone have another word in their translation? Verse 25. Uh, where it says, nevertheless, they did not heed the voice of their father because, that word there, because the Lord desired to kill them. So I have to slay them. Well, the will to slay them. okay. Well, when I looked up this word because, it said in a couple different places, that this, this word should be translated, Therefore as, it, as that, the word therefore is translated for this Hebrew word in, in some other places. But they're saying that it appears, if you just read this on the surface, that, that the reason that they did not heed the voice of their father was because that God wanted to kill them. But now if you insert the word therefore, to me it makes more sense. It, it sounds I think that's the way it should be. Nevertheless, they did not heed the voice of their father. Therefore, the Lord desired to kill them. So I think that that's a poor translation there. Verse 26, In contrast to the sons of Eli, and the child Samuel grew in stature and in favor both with the Lord and men. So again, you see the contrast. Even though you have the evil sons, you have all that, still the Lord has, as we know in the scripture, he has a remnant. Here you have Samuel, and Samuel's serving the Lord. Okay, now... Verse 30, therefore, the Lord God of Israel says, I said indeed that your house, and I want to get my chalk here because I want to look at something here. Therefore, the Lord God of Israel says, I said indeed that your house and the house of your father would walk before me forever. That's a promise. And you can go back to Aaron and you'll see that the Lord said that their lineage would walk before him forever. That's a special place that he had for the Levite, the priest, and so forth. But there's a key phrase in this verse. But the but now of God. The but now of God. So even though the Lord had said, and he had promised in his word, he spoke this, that They would be his priest forever, even though he said that. That did not continue. That did not continue. Or another way to say it, that the Lord changed his mind. What do a lot of preachers echo all the time? Well, what God promised, that will he do. Well, I'm going to show you some examples, of, and there are others, but even just this one where God promised it and God changed his mind, and there's a reason for it. Now, is God's word true? Yes. Yes, it is. But there's another factor involved in many times. There's certain conditions. If you go to scriptures in the Bible and you start to read them, you'll see certain conditions. And the conditions in the verse must be fulfilled for the verse to occur. So let's take this and put this on a very level where we'll understand it. So let's say that you tell your children, well, you have to do your chores before you do such and such that you want to do. Okay, well, that's your word. Well, all they see is, well, that's what I want to do. Well, if they, if they want to get to what they want to do here, they have to fulfill the condition, and that's do the dishes or whatever chores there are. And you'll see that in many scriptures. Okay, let's go to Exodus for a minute. But let's just read one more verse here. In chapter 2, verse 34. Well, let's finish verse 30. But now the Lord says, Far be it from me... For those who honor me, I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. And even though God originally had said something here, he uses this time here to say, But now I am going to do something different. In verse 34, Now this shall be a sign to you that will come upon your two sons, on Hophni and Phinehas, in one day they shall die. Both of them. Now, in Exodus 29, when God dealt with the priesthood, he was very severe at times. The high priest had to go through ceremonial cleansing. Things had to be done just the way the Lord had laid things out in the scriptures because he wanted obedience from the priesthood. So they had to go through this cleansing and all these different things so that when the priest, the high priest, would go in to the Holy of Holies once a year, if he did not go in the correct way, he would be struck dead. Did you know that? And they say that they used to tie a rope around the high priest's leg so that if he would fall over, they had little bells on the bottom of their garment, and if they fell over and they didn't hear the movement and hear the bells. They knew that he was struck dead, and nobody could go in there and get them because they were you know, in jeopardy. So they would pull him out with a rope. So God dealt very strictly with the priesthood because he had set the priesthood up for uh, a certain reason. So these were the, the men who were to take the offerings of the people that they brought and you know, take care of them, do things the way they're supposed to be done. So in Exodus 29, verse 9, And you shall gird them with, with sashes, Aaron and his sons, and put the hats on them. The priesthood shall be theirs for a perpetual statute. And so you shall consecrate Aaron and his sons. So that's, that's what the Lord had said. This is going to be a perpetual statute for Aaron and his descendants. Eli was a descendant of Aaron. In Numbers 25. Now, this Phineas here uh, was not the same as we're reading. You know, some people in the Bible have the same names, different people. This one here is the grandson of Aaron. Verse 11. Phineas, the son of Eleazar. Eleazar was uh, the son of, of Aaron. And then then Phineas was Aaron's grandson. The son of Aaron the priest has turned, has turned back my wrath from the children of Israel because he was zealous uh, with my zeal among them, so that I did not consume the children of Israel in my zeal. Therefore say, behold, I give to him my covenant of peace, and it shall be to him and his descendants after him a covenant of an everlasting priesthood because... He was zealous for the Lord and made atonement for the children of Israel. So you see here that the Lord had spelled this out in the scripture, that this was going to be a perpetual priesthood. Now look in Jeremiah, because this puts this in perspective. Jeremiah 18. Why did God change his mind? Why did God change his mind? And they weren't living up to their deal. The yes, True. Anybody else? Why would God lay something down here, his promise in his word, and then change his mind about it? Yeah, this verse here puts this in perspective. I hope I have the right scripture. (laughs) Jeremiah 18. Yeah, this is it. Verse 6. O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter? Now, you know what a potter does, right? potter takes the clay and forms it the way the potter wants to form it. Look, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. The instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to pluck up, to pull down, and to destroy it, if that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of a disaster that I thought to bring upon it. And the instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to build and to plan it, if it does evil in my sight so that it does not obey my voice, then I will relent concerning the good which I had said I would I would benefit it. Now therefore speak to the men of Judah and so forth. Verse 15, because my people have forgotten me, they have burned incense to worthless idols and they have con Cause themselves to stumble in their ways from the ancient past to walk in pathways and not on a highway, to make their land desolate and a perpetual hissing. Everyone who passes by it will be astonished and shake his head. Verse 17, I will scatter them as with an east wind before the enemy, and I will show them the back and not the face in the day of their calamity. So, The Lord says here clearly that if they turn another way, if the nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I thought to to bring it. And then the other way holds true also. So there are examples in scripture where God changes his mind. Can anybody think of one other than the one we just read? Well, we'll look at one in a little bit. One of them was Nineveh. Now, I put this phrase up here on the board, but now. But now is a factor that shows a change in the promise of God here in this instance. In this instance, something's going to be changed. Something that God said is now changed because of the wickedness of the priesthood. Now, of course, God is still going to have a priest, and it's going to be Samuel. It's not going to be Eli, it's not going to be Hophni near Phinehas. God's still going to have a priest, but it's not going to be their lineage. God's going to cut them off because of their evil ways. Now let's go to 1 Samuel 13, verse 5. Then the Philistines, remember he said that, I didn't, we didn't read the whole thing, but he, God promised that he was going to cut off the sons of Eli. He was going to destroy them. And another, if you would continue to read on, it says that he was going to cut them off in one day. Verse 5 Then the Philistines gathered together to fight with Israel, thirty thousand chariots and six thousand horsemen, and people as the sand which is on the seashore in multitude. And they came up and encamped in Mishmash uh, to the east of Ben Avon. When the men of Israel saw that they were in danger, for the people were distressed, then the people hid in caves, in thickets, in rocks, in holes, and in pits. And some of the Hebrews crossed over the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. As for Saul, he was still in Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. Then he waited seven days according to the time uh, set by Samuel. Now, this is later on in Samuel's life. Saul is anointed king, and Saul is, is there leading the armies against the Philistines. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, so he tells Saul to wait for him, for the sacrifice. Why? We know the story here, what happens. So Saul said, bring a burnt offering and a peace offering here to me, and he offered the burnt offering. Who was to offer the offerings in the Bible? The priests. priests. So the problem here, Saul was a king. He was not functioning in the the, uh, priest's office. And so it goes on and he says that because, he says to Samuel well, Samuel says why did you do this and he says because I waited and waited and you did not come and so I forced myself to make this offering and then Samuel said you know, you have done evil in the sight of the Lord because you did not listen. Verse 11 and Samuel said what have you done Saul said when I saw that the people were scattered from me and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines gathered together at Michmash. Then I said, the Philistines will will now come down on me at Gilgal, and I have not made supplication to the Lord. Therefore I felt compelled to offer a burnt offering. And so Samuel is going to say something now to him. You have done foolishly and have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now, here's the but now of God. But now your kingdom shall, shall not continue. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart. So Saul came to this but now. Now we all will come to a but now. And this is dealing with time. It's dealing with a direction change. But we all, at our at certain times of our, in our life, will come to a but now. And the but now, what follows after that will either be something good or it can be something bad. So that, well, let's use this example. So if, if a person is walking with the Lord and then they decide to turn aside or for whatever reason they turn aside and they move another way and they're moving in something that the Lord has not wanted them to move into. And they continue in that for, let's say, five, six, eight years. What happens is eventually they will come to but now, and then something is going to occur in their life. So the but now in their life is going to be something that is not good because they are not walking with God and they're not walking in the will and purpose that God has had for their lives. Whereas if another person walks in God and they continue on, they will come to a but now and what follows that will be something good, it will be something godly. So let's say you serve the Lord for 10 years, 15 years, and you're walking with God and you're in the will of God, you're moving in his purpose, and, and you know, you're know you doing what you know to do. A but now will come and it might be now the Lord gives you some responsibility. You might be a pastor over two or three people. I'm not talking about a church pastor. I'm talking about you're pastoring a person. You're shepherding them. The Lord may give you that, put that in your hand. But if you're not going in the right way, the but now is not going to produce some godly thing. Do you understand? So in the case of Saul, the but now here. But now your kingdom shall not continue. Why? Because he was not where he was to be. He was not moving in what the Lord wanted him to move in. And there's another example in his life where he he does something and disobeys the commandment, disobeys the Lord. And so in the heart of Saul, there was this heart of disobedience, and it manifests itself in various times. And and then that continued on when he tried to kill David and, and so forth. And so the but now was a change in his life. There was a time element involved, and now he comes to this point, and God says, okay, but now you will no longer be established. Your kingdom will no longer be established. And the change there is a change for the worst. And the Lord would desire for us that when we come to the but now, that what transpires after that is the goodness of God in our lives, you know, the the grace of God. All that which God has done that now is uh, there to come out and and produce something that God wants. Now let's go to um, Jonah. The Assyrians, what was the capital of the Assyrian, you know? The Assyrian Empire all you Bible school teachers. (laughs) The the capital of the Assyrian empire was Nineveh. The Assyrians were extremely brutal people and the Lord watches a nation like that and gives grace for so long. He wants a change and I don't know how many, I have no idea, was it 100 years or, or, or longer? I don't know, but the Assyrians were extremely brutal. They would go and they would uh, conquer cities, and they would take their captives out of the city, and they'd put stakes there and then impale the people on. They they would take them. They would cut off their limbs. They would cut off their arms or their feet. Uh, they they would rape the women. They they would they would do brutal, very brutal things, and so God decides He's going to go in now. His judgment's going to be upon Nineveh, and he's going to destroy Nineveh. Jonah, somehow or some, I I personally believe that he, of course, he knew the brutality of the Ninevites, and he wants to see that go, not go unpunished, but to be punished. And there may have been in Jonah's life someone that he knew, or maybe a, a family member, whoever, that experience something in a personal nature that touches him because God sends, wants to send Jonah to Nineveh and he doesn't want to go. He does not want to see the Ninevites repent. He doesn't want to see it. And it sounds kind of, you know, why would a prophet of God not want to see people repent? Because I believe something touched him. Something touched him. And, you know, how could we experience something? like Let's say one of our kids or our parent. One of our parents, you know, these group of people would come and they would torture them and kill them in front of us. What would our heart be like to them? What would we think of them? Would we want someone to come and tear their guts out? Probably. Jonah here, we look at that and we look at the book and say, why didn't this guy respond to the Lord? I used to think about that years ago until the Lord showed me some things here that, you know, there's something there that touched him and touched him deeply. And he did not want him to repent. He didn't want to go preach. That's why he went the other way. That's why he he ends up in a well. And even after the well spits him out on land, he still didn't really want to go. And he's a prophet. Well, see, the Lord had to do something in his heart. That appears at at the point here in in this that he he didn't do. He couldn't do. But anyway, let's look at uh, verse 10, I think it is. Yes, chapter 3. So God sends Jonah. He wants to destroy Nineveh. God's going to destroy Nineveh. But he's sending Jonah to warn them that judgment is going to come. Then God saw their works that they turn from their evil way. This is the Ninevites. And God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them. And but now, I'm adding that, but now he did not do it. But now, why, why the but now? Because they repented. And as far as the Assyrians were concerned, their empire, this was the only time where there was a bit of light, this generation that came to the Lord. And some years later, God actually goes and destroys Nineveh. Okay, let's uh, go to Jeremiah 18, one verse. Oh, never mind, that we read that. Okay, now let's go to Exodus then, Exodus 32. Now, you know what happened when Moses went up to receive the law? What, what did the people do? Pardon me? Yes, they, they made a golden calf. So let's, let's read verse 1. Now, when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered together to Aaron and said to him, Come, make us gods that shall go before us, as for this Moses and the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So they went in verse 4 and they made a, a molten calf. Eventually here the Lord tells Moses, verse 7, to go down for your people whom you brought out of the land have corrupted themselves. Now in verse 9 it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and indeed it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and may consume them, and I will make of you a great nation. So he's telling Moses that these people are stiff-necked and they're, they're not going the right direction. And he says, get out of my way, I'm going to destroy them. And then he says in verse 10, I will make a great nation of you. What happens is Moses intercedes for the people and God changes his mind. Verse 14, so the Lord relented from the harm which he said he would do to his people. Once again, the Lord was going to do one thing and because of something else that has changed. Or you can say it this way, God was going to step in and kill the people, but now Moses interceded and God did not do that. I want to write this down here. You can write this if you want. The phrase, but now... Is established in the time frame of one's life. And that can signify a change of direction. As I had given you an example before, that direction can be a good direction or can be a not so good direction. And this phrase but now introduces what the current state is. So that's what the but now is. That's what it does. It's established in the framework of your life. See, this is a time element dealing with you personally, your life. And it can signify a change of direction. So you're going along, but now this happens. But now the Lord does it. But now this will occur. And that can be something good. It can be something wholesome. It can be something that causes tremendous growth in your life. Or it can be something else that is not so good. And we saw the example with Eli and Hophni and Phinehas. And even Eli. And uh, with, oh yeah, with Saul. With Saul. But now he would no longer keep his kingdom. Okay, now let's see here. Let's go to... John 9. I'll read this verse from Chronicles. Now, any questions to this point? Is this clear enough for you? Is it clear enough? Any questions? First Chronicles, I'll read this. uh, Chapter 21, verse 1. Now, Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. Why did not the Lord want David to number the, all the people in Israel? Anybody know? He sends the captain of his army, Joab, and Joab doesn't really want to do this. He says that he, sh- he shouldn't do this. But David David sends him anyway, so he goes through the land, and, and he numbers all the people. Joab, verse 5 here says, And Joab gave the sum of the number of the people to David. All Israel had one million 100,000 men who drew the sword, and Judah had 470,000 who drew the sword. Okay, and then it goes on. Why wouldn't the Lord allow them to do that? Well, let's say you have an army of the Amalekites or the Philistines, and they're numbering four million. And you know now, well, we only have one million, and we're outnumbered four to one. And that plays upon the mind. See, the Lord knows that. He wanted them to have faith in him regardless of the numbers. It says in a couple places that when the Philistines came, they were like the sand of the sea in number. There were so many of them. No wonder Saul, I can understand why he was fearful. But see, the Lord didn't want them to number the people because it's just like, well, there's a gang of people coming. Well, how many are there? Oh, there's twelve. Well, there's only three of us? What are we going to do? We'll never be able. See, that fosters unbelief. It does not move toward trusting God no matter what. And I believe that's the reason why the Lord did not want them to number the people. And so it says here, and God was displeased with this thing. Therefore, He struck Israel. He struck Israel with a plague. And the Lord comes uh, through this prophet Gad to David. And he gives him three choices. Let's see, where is this here? 27 here. He gives him three choices, and David doesn't like any of them because they're not too good. Um, let me see if I can find them here, real quick. Okay, three years of famine. Or three months to be defeated by your foes with the sword of your enemies overtaking you. That's the other other choice. Or else for three days the sword of the Lord, the plague in the land, with the angel of the Lord destroying throughout all the territory of Israel. And so David says to, to Gad, I am in a great distress, I would rather fall into the hands of the Lord than into my enemy's hands, and I love that. That is so good. So he's saying, rather there be pestilence, you know, that the Lord comes, the angel of the Lord comes, than to to fall into the hands of the enemy, or into famine. And then, then what happens is the Lord sends the angel of the Lord, and the angel of the Lord goes through the land, and then there's a but now, and it stops, it changes. Now things, you know, the Lord is, is satisfied now, you know, with the judgment for the penalty. So there always seems to be this, this button now in, in certain places in the Bible that I see. So in John 9, we'll stay in the New Testament here for a little bit. John 9, now, now let's keep this in this proper perspective. You know, there's always button now. It's like I worked all day, but now I want to eat. <laughs> now, we're not talking about that but now, although, the, you know, it helps us to relate to this. But I'm talking about a spiritual walk and a place at which a person comes to, to where but now happens. And now there's going to be a change in time. The time whole time thing here is going to take a shift. And there's a shift in direction in which the person is going to go, the person's walking, you know, change in time or time, change in direction. Now, in John 9, verse 6, now this is where the, the, they come by and this man was born blind. In verse 6, when he had said these things, he spat on the ground, Jesus, and made clay with his saliva, and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with clay. Verse 13, they brought him who formerly was blind to the Pharisees. Now, it was the Sabbath when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Of course, Jesus always does things that are going to rock the boat with these Jews because he wants to get them out of their, their religion and focus upon God. Not focus upon the rules, not focus upon their religion, not focus upon their traditions, not, traditions, not focus upon what they think, but focus upon the Lord. So he, he does certain things. Verse 18 But the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of him who had received his sight. And they asked them, saying, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. Down to verse 30. The man answered and said to them, this is the Pharisees, they're trying to, you know, really put him over the grill. Why is this a marvelous thing that you do not know where he is from? Meaning Jesus. Yet he has opened my eyes. Now we know that God does not hear sinners, but if any man is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him. Verse 32. Since the world began, it it has been unheard of, that anyone opened the eyes of one who was born blind if this man were not from god he could do nothing then answered they answered and said to him you were completely born in sins and are you teaching us and they cast him out so they, they excommunicate him because he's testifying of of the, the lord jesus what he did and he healed so jesus the pharisees come to jesus and they're you know talking to him Verse 39. And Jesus said, "For judgment I have come into the world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may be made blind." Then some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these sayings and said to him, "Are we blind also?" Now remember the series of events that's taking place here: is man's born blind, Jesus heals him on the Sabbath. Now the Pharisees, the Jews are questioning Jesus, are questioning the man, or trying to find out what's going on here. They don't believe Jesus is the Son of God. They, they say, we know Moses, we're disciples of Moses, but this man, we don't even know where he's from. And so this is the this is setting here for all this. So what the Lord wants to do is to take those that are blind and give them sight. So he does this in the natural, he takes a man who's blind and he gives him sight. But the Jews now, that are spiritually blind, Jesus again wants to give them sight. So here's this time element flowing here in this whole thing, you know, however long it took. Jesus wants to do something more than the physical healing here. Verse 41, Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But now... You say, we see, therefore your sin remains. So the but now here shows them where they're going. The but now here, see, there, there, is, there was to be in this a change of direction for this, the Pharisees. But because they did not make this adjustment here, and they could not get down under this whole Sabbath thing, that, that the Lord is Lord over the Sabbath, Instead of there being a change of direction, now Jesus is going to tell them what the current state is, their current state, but now, therefore, your sins remain. So the but now here for them, the result in their life was not good. Their sin remained, whereas it could have changed. They came to the but now, but it didn't change. Nothing changed for the better for them. In Acts, about four or five more scriptures, then we're going to close. Acts chapter 1, verse 20. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his dwelling place be desolate. What's that talking about? Anybody know? Let his dwelling place be desolate and let no one live in it and let another take his office or his bishopric. What's that talking about? It's talking about Judas denying the Lord. And remember, Jesus called 12 disciples or 12 apostles. And and Jesus wanted 12. But because Judas denies him and Judas dies, you have this here where it says, let another or but now another will take his office. See, Judas came to the but now, and it wasn't a good but now. And I'll read this verse from Psalms. Psalm 119. I don't think think it was David wrote that. Well, the psalmist, whoever it was. "Before, Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now have I kept thy word. See, and that's going to produce something really good. Something occurred in the life that caused this psalmist to keep his word, to move in his word, rather than go astray. Let's go to Luke, Luke 16. Now, you know the story of the rich man and Lazarus, how the rich man, you know, had all his riches, and, and who was Lazarus? He was a beggar. Not the Lazarus he rose, he rose from the dead. I don't believe it's the same one. It, it, the other one, he, he was um, feeding from the crumbs from the table. So the rich man and Lazarus had two different positions in life one was a beggar starving you know and that was his existence and the rich man you know he lived in pleasure he lived the way he wanted he didn't live for God he didn't walk with God and even though this other man this Lazarus was a beggar and it says in here that he would just feed from the crumbs that fell off the table that's pretty, pretty bad that's pretty sad And see, the Lord, he sees the life. He sees the heart. And in verse 25, and so this is where the rich man goes to hell, to Sheol. And he sees Lazarus in the bosom of Abraham. And he's tormented. He says to to Abraham, allow him to come with a drop of water on your finger to just touch my tongue. And Abraham says, no one can pass. I'm kind of paraphrasing this for you. No one can pass from here to where you are. It's impassable. And so in verse 25, But Abraham said, said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and you are tormented. So the but now here shows that the time element, however long their lives were, now there's an end to that, and the but now shows a different direction for both of them. Lazarus is comforted, the rich man is in anguish and suffering. See, so with every man, woman in the world, we will all come either now in our lives, I believe that we run into this occasionally as Christians, but if not, if we don't even see it then, there will always be, people say, a reckoning day. There will always be a day where we all die and leave this world. And so if you if you want to take that all the way to the end, once a person dies, you have the but now, and something else occurs. And that will either be something good for the Christian or not so good for those who aren't. Okay. I'll read this verse, and we probably know this from Job. This is toward the end of the book, and Job says, I have heard you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. So there was a change there. A few more scriptures. Ephesians 2, verse 13. What are the first two words of the verse? But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once Far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Chapter 5, verse 8. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. So in those two verses you can see very clearly the but now. Now are there any questions? In closing I'll show you one more area here and then we'll quit. Uh, Matthew 4. I want to show you the but now, but it's translated by a different word. And I'll have to turn to uh, Luke here. Okay. Matthew 4, verse 1. Let me write this down. Can you read that? Make it big enough? It's the same thing. Another uh, translation for then is or can be at that time, or, or but now. You know, but now, what's going to happen at that time? Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. What precedes then? You're not going to find it there. There's something that precedes this. but Proceeds or precedes? Precedes. Okay, sorry. There's something that precedes the then. And I'll read it to you. This is Luke 2, 51. Then Jesus went down with them, meaning his parents. Remember he was in a temple teaching? Mm-hmm. Then Jesus went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject to them. He was subject or submitted to them, even though he, he knew a lot. He was in the uh, temple, the synagogue, teaching the teachers at age 12. So he knew a lot as far as the kingdom of God. And he could have continued to teach, but he felt the, the Lord leading him, the father leading him to be subject or s- subjected or uh, submitted to his parents. It says, but his mother kept all these things. And then the next verse says, and Jesus increased because he was in submission. He increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Just like that scripture in Samuel where Samuel grew in favor with God and men, it says. You see this with Jesus. And now because of the growth and because of the time there being in subjection to his parents for another uh, 12, 10, 10, 16, another 16 years, that precedes the then in Matthew 4.1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit of into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So he goes into the wilderness, he's tempted by the devil. Verse 10, now he goes through the test here. He says, then Jesus said to him, to Satan, away with you, Satan. So then you have another, another thing, or uh, you could say a but now. You have this what precedes that. Then you have, then Jesus was led. Then Jesus was tempted for a space of time there then it's time for him to say, leave me. Now, here's the critical thing here. Look at this in this this chapter. Verse 17, from that time or then, Jesus began to preach and to say, repent for the kingdom. So all these things preceded Jesus going out and preaching. So, you know, Jesus had a but now. He's in the synagogue. But now the father has him go to be in subjection to his parents. So he's there for a period of time. But now or then, he's taken by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. Then he goes through that. And but now or then, he, he says, now Satan, it's, you, you've done what you're, you're supposed to do here. Now leave me. Then he began to preach. And his preaching was weighty. The words he spoke were not as the words of the Pharisees, they said. Not. Why? Because Jesus went through the thens or the but nows and walked in that whole thing correctly and he came out and when he preached, he had something. He had something. So there will be but nows for you and for me in our walk that will be critical. What precedes that is critical and when that comes... That will either put us in a direction moving toward the Lord in a greater way, in a more deeper walk than before, or as with some, there's never a change. There's never a change. No, nothing ever transpires of any eternal benefit. So there are other words that mean the same as the but now, and then is one.